0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Linda Javen, and I'm delighted to be chairing this session on The Artful Dickens by John Mullen, who we hope will be on the line anytime, sometime very, very soon. In the meantime, I do want to say that we acknowledge the Ghana people. As the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to their elders past, present and future, we respect and recognise their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. It has never been ceded. We acknowledge that the land and customs are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. And, yes, welcome to this session and, as I said, we are We are desperately hoping that John Mullen will be joining us very soon. So I've been asked, can I just wing it for a little bit until he pops up on the screen? Um, So I think you're going to have to bear with me. Um, (laughs) uh, I will introduce him when he um, appears, but I just want to say I was so excited when the festival asked me to do this, um, and the reason is completely... Probably not what you're expecting, because if you know anything about me at all, which you don't have to, I, I write novels and I write about China. Um, but when I was, I was a huge reader when I was a kid, when I was about 10 or 11, um, 10, 11, 12, I read nearly everything that Dickens wrote in these editions that belonged to my grandparents and that were published at the end of the 19th century. And I just loved this so much. And actually, uh, when they packed up my grandparents' house, my brother's like, I want the Mark Twain. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. I'm getting the Dickens. <laughs> and it's very funny, because when I told John Mullen that in a conversation on email, um, he was like, oh, my God. He's like, I'm a little nervous. You're, you're more steeped in Dickens than, than, than me. And I said, no, no, no. I read him as a child. <laughs> I loved them to bits, but I didn't understand a thing. Um, (laughs) And I didn't remember all that much. So this book totally reignited my love of Dickens. And I now want to go back and get right back into all of these books. Um, You know, and the thing about this book is that if you love Dickens or you loved Dickens uh, or you've never read Dickens, I can still really recommend the book because... It will introduce you to Dickens. There's so many delightful quotations from uh, his work in here. And he takes you step by step through the various things that Dickens does that makes him uh, what John Mullen says is the... um, I think he calls him the, the... From one artful sentence to the next... He was and is the most exciting novelist writing in the English language. And so, yeah, I really do recommend this. And also, um, and I'll probably say this again when he pops up, but um, that to me, as a novelist, I felt like, and I've never studied creative writing, uh, but I have written seven novels, so I've got severe imposter syndrome. Um, <laughs> uh, but to me, this was like taking an absolute master class in the art of writing fiction. On everything from understanding the importance of smell and the ways you can use smell, including as a plot device, uh, to the crazy kind of use of cliche and melodrama and drowning. He has a whole chapter on drownings in Dickens. And and he talks about, whenever he talks about something, he talks about the the, the social background. Like, lots of people drowned at that time. Lots of people did because, I mean, not everybody swam. Boats were a major means of transportation. Um, people fell into rivers, this sort of thing. Um, You know, we now have all these little safety bridges and stuff. But there's a whole chapter on drowning. And he was fascinated by it. There are so many... I think he says that there's a drowning in every chapter, or every book, you know, at least. (laughs) But, like, with smell, for example, and still desperately hoping he's going to pop up at any minute. But... he does know we're on. <laughs> we have emailed, um, but in sm- I was going to. Uh, I've got a few extra questions for him. Should we not, you know, make the time here as one does when one's overprepared like me? Um, and I have one thing about smelling because that whole chapter was hilarious. Dickens is hilarious. Dickens is such high comedy even when he's writing tragedy, and he pulls it off. It's one of the things I mean about being a masterclass in fiction. He wrote, um, in addition to his novels, he also wrote travel, you know, travel writing, um, sketches and so on. And he had a volume about his travels in Italy. And he wrote about a street in um, Genoa where the houses were, he tells us, very dirty, quite undrained. And he says if my nose be at all reliable, they emit a peculiar fragrance like the smell of very bad cheese kept in very hot blankets. <laughs> and this this is just, he has this amazing ability to conjure up the most fabulous metaphors and instantly put something in your nose. And it, he also writes in the chapter on smelling, um, about how Dickens himself used to kind of walk down the streets and sniff, like he was—he was really his <laughs> friends <laughs> said this is something he did. He had a very keen nose, and he would just, he would just be sniffing everything. And, you know, this is like so much about. It's not a biography of Dickens. It's a, it's a discussion of how great, how interesting and great a writer he is, but he puts in a lot of biographical material. And um, so, you know, there's a whole chapter, and we'll be talking about this as well, but there's a whole chapter on um, voices. And Dickens himself was a great amateur. uh, He he did this kind of amateur theatre, and he would do voices, and he could just... He could... Do these amazing voices, and he has he has written hundreds and hundreds of characters, and they are all distinguished distinguished by their voices. Um, what John Mullins calls idiolects, um, because they're not dialect. Some of them have dialect in them, so they might be Cockney or they might be from a particular type of from particular place in England, but they're not they're not strictly dialect. Every single person. Every single character has their own quirks. So you have, um, you know, one person who can never finish a sentence, and their entire speech is like, fragment, 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 fragment. And you have other people who constantly hm, 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 you know, that kind of thing in the middle of their sentences. And that means that when they're actually, when you're actually uh, reading this, uh, a character can be walking down the street and they hear a voice, and you hear that voice, you know, saying something, and you and the character instantly know who it is who's coming up from behind because the voices are so distinctive. And that was something, again, that, that Dickens had as a kind of, I suppose, a superpower. Um, and there's this wonderful... Um, there's this... Uh, this is all out of order because, obviously... Um... <laughs> Hello, John, not yet... Um, So, and I did, when I was going to talk about voices with him, which I hope I can still do, um, I did have a question for the audience. So, um, I'm going to read you a little passage, and then there's a line in it, and the line goes, how do the police, he do the police in different voices, and I'm going to ask you something about that line. So this is um, the semi-literate Betty Higden is wondering at the ability of her foundling assistant, Sloppy, <laughs> to do, there's a whole chapter on naming, <laughs> to do dramatic justice to characters quoted in newspaper crime reports. For I ain't, you must know, said Betty, much of a hand at reading writing hand though i can read my bible and most print and i do love a newspaper you mightn't think it but sloppy is a beautiful reader of a newspaper he do the police in different voices <laughs> and he do the police in different voices is 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 basically dickens he do the police in different voices but the question for all of you and i want to see if anybody shoots their hand up here What famous 20th century poet originally thought to name one of his most famous poems, he do the police in different voices? Does anyone know? Yes, sir. That's right, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. The original title, very good. He gets the prize, we don't actually have a prize, but if we did, (laughs) this gentleman would get it. Very good. So, you know, it's interesting because I don't think many people would connect um, T.S. Eliot and Dickens in such a direct line. But I think Dickens had an influence on uh, many, many writers. And, you know, even though, as I say, I kind of read them when I was young and then forgot them all, um, I also feel like in my love for (laughs) cliché... And bad jokes and um, and this sort of thing. I think I have absorbed some things, but I don't do cliche the way Dickens does. So I have read that chapter twice and I'm going to take uh, <laughs> note. Um, and we still don't have John Mullins, but we're carrying on. I hope you're all okay with that. He's coming now? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Hold. <laughs> Hold hold your applause because we are going to see John Mullen in a moment and how exciting that will be. Um, <laughs> uh, so hopefully I haven't sort of preempted all of my questions. <laughs> and anyway, he will answer them much better than I have um, or could do. Um, but yes, I'm very relieved. While I'm waiting. Yes. we are. We have him. Two, two, four, five. <laughs> two. Hello. 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 He- <laughs> Hello. Is that John? <laughs> Hello. It is. Oh no. <laughs> we are so glad to have you. I have been carrying on in your stead, pretending to be you and uh, discussing how great your novel is. Um, oh, novel, I'm sorry. your novel, sorry, sorry your book. Um, but no, no, we are so delighted. Let me just briefly introduce you because I held that one back. John Mullen, who is now wonderfully here with us, is Lord Northcliffe Professor of Modern English Literature at University College London. He has published extensively on 18th and 19th century literature. He's a prolific broadcaster and journalist. Um, Um, He writes on contemporary fiction. You might have seen his work in The Guardian as well. He's coming to us today from his home in London. Is that right?
1: That's right, yeah, my book cave, my little book cave in North London.
0: Please give him a very warm Adelaide welcome. (laughs) We are so delighted to see you. Um,
1: relieved I suspect. <laughs>
0: um, I've, I've given them uh, I've talked to them a little bit about smell and quoted uh, here and there from you um, but I thought we, can we start with on the first page of your book you say that the book tries to answer the question what is so good about Dickens novels because you say that it's so much easier to state what's bad about them the melodrama that this and that and critics have really consistently dismissed him as a great entertainer rather than a great writer and yet you claim from one artful sentence to the next he was and is the most exciting novelist writing in the English language. Tell us John what is so good about Dickens?
1: (laughs) Well I think a lot of the I mean it is very striking as you say that even from his um, even in his own lifetime. Um, he, was, uh, he was kind of condescended to quite a lot um, by critics and reviewers who would say, oh, well, of course he's very funny, I admit that, or his characters are very memorable, or <laughs> he sells lots of books, that was one of his big crimes. Um, um, but, but a lot of what he did that was so, I think, sophisticated and audacious was seen almost to be invisible to people at the time. And I, I wonder sometimes if it sort of stayed invisible. And I, I, I mean, I give one little example of this. I don't know how many people in, in what looks like the blissful surroundings of Adelaide. God, it looks like heaven on earth compared to <laughs> frosty North London. But anyway, how many people there have read Bleak House? But whether you have or you haven't... Um,
0: Lots of people you know, have This is an
1: extraordinary hens. novel which was a bestseller in his own day, and is discussed earnestly by literary critics nowadays, but uh, he wrote it in chapters of sort of alternating present and past tense, so there's one narration which is, which is in the present tense in the third person, there's another narration which is in the past tense in the first person and these chapters are sort of interleaved with each other and make up one great vast story and nobody'd ever done anything like this in novels before it's the kind of thing you do nowadays if you want to sort of get onto the booker prize long list to show how ingenious you are and nobody'd ever done it before and strikingly um, not a single reviewer in the 19th century noticed that he'd done it. <laughs> so it, it's almost as if some of his experiments were so unusual that they were invisible. And, um, and, and I wonder if that's not still the case, that, that some of the, the tricks and devices that he uses are... Kind of somehow beneath the horizon of, of of people who write about it, and I think he's often he's not been helped by the fact that, you know, uh, everybody, lots of people who write about Dickens nowadays write about him rather than his novels, and I wanted to do a book which um, wasn't about. Um, You know, whether he was uh, a bad husband, which he certainly was, or whether he was a bad father, which he certainly was, or whether there weren't all sorts of inconsistencies between what he seemed to sort of want to celebrate in his novels and how he behaved in his own life. Um, I wanted to write about what a clever writer he was.
0: And you do. And you put, there's so many, all the chapters um, in in the book are devoted to different aspects of this. So the chapters, which we we won't get into all of them, but just to give you a taste, there's smelling and there's haunting. I was talking to you earlier about drowning, laughing, naming, using coincidences, enjoying cliches and foreseeing this sort of thing. before I ask you another question, I want to go back to what you're saying about tenses and switching tenses because it raises a very in, you you have a very interesting observation about this because what what John does in this book is he reveals how Dickens how Dickens makes his fiction magic I suppose um, but he also talks about what what those what the consequences of those particular tricks are and you're right when you're talking about a particular use of a present tense, you say, this is what the present tense can do. Erase any retrospective wisdom, any moral sense. Huh. Um, and I'm very interested in, because you were just talking about Dickens wasn't a great, you know, husband, blah, 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 blah. Was Dickens a writer of great moral purpose in your estimation?
1: Ah, oh, well, that's a <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, I... I Yes, I think he was, but I would say that to me he's not he's not, as it were, a writer that one goes to to kind of find out wisdom about how one should live one's life. I mean, I think there are novelists like that. There are great novelists like I don't know George Eliot. I think if you go and read a, a read, read Middlemarch, it's as if you're spending time in the company of a really wise, morally subtle person. And I don't think Dickens is, is like that. Um, I think he is a, a novelist who sort of crystallises the sort of... I don't know. How can I put it? I think he tells us about the, the, the monsters inside our own head, in a way. You- and... And and so it's not. But he's not a morally interesting writer. But I don't think he's a wise and didactic writer at all. Yes. Um, and 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 I think that sometimes uh, when he's caught out for being, I don't know, sentimental or something, it's because readers, they, the readers want him to be. Uh, want a novel to be wise in the sort of way that Tolstoy or George Eliot will be, and he's not like that. Um, but on the other hand, his monsters live, don't they? My goodness, they live. And I think if you if you read Great Expectations, you will find out as much about sort of guilt and bitterness <laughs> as from as you ever can from a novel. You won't necessarily get lots of advice about how to be a better person
0: which is which is really a huge part of the art you know it's and one of the things I thought which is related to that is there's all this stuff about you could have had a a chapter on class um, because that's such an interesting thing and you do say um, in the chapter on using coincidences um, and you're using Bleak House as an example you say that um, Dickens' intricate plot connects the rich and the privileged to those whom they would like to ignore <laughs> and that yes. seems to be pretty much the case he's always there's a lot of movement uh, and there's a lot of connection not always um, felicitous between people of different classes in his novel in his novels
1: yeah that's right and i mean but then even then i think the great thing is you took talk, that talking about uh, uh, coincidence that, that um, you know there are other novelists other Victorian novelists who are very interesting about class and have characters from a wide variety of classes but nobody does such weird and wonderful things with coincidences as Dickens so I think in my chapter on coincidences I, I sort of say that what's brilliant about what you're you're asking about, is is that whereas other novelists would try and sort of disguise and hide the coincidences by which they sort of connect the different parts of their plot, uh, Dickens does the opposite. He wants you to sort of notice the unlikeliness of the connections and therefore... To get and get some sort of electric charge from them. I mean, there's a great, there's a great moment in David Copperfield where David is being shown round this new model prison, and he's gone with his friend Traddles. And he discovers that his former headmaster, the ghastly Mr. Creakle, is now in charge of this new model prison, which is in itself a sort of appropriate kind of coincidence. Um, and Mr. Creakle says, oh, you must meet our model prisoners because what we're very good at doing is making people repent and making them better people. And, and this is all twaddle, of course. You know, <laughs> But anyway, and he says, come and meet prisoner 27. He's, our, he's one of our so We're very, very proud of him. And he directs the door of the cell to be unlocked, and number 27 comes out. And who is number 27? And he said, David says, and I then behold to my amazement in this converted number 27. It's Uriah Heep. Of course it is. <laughs> he is such a sort of... Um, Oleaginous hypocrite that who, you know, although he's, be, he's been defeated and he's been sent to prison for fraud, in prison he's metamorphosed into a perfect penitent. But then Dickens doesn't leave it at that. Uh, he says, while 27 is standing in the midst of us, um, orders are given to let out number 28. And <laughs> And out comes 28, and it's Mr. Littimer from the next cell, Steerforth's gruesome valet, um, who walks out reading a good book and spouts penitent sentiments. And David says something like, um, oh, I've been so astonished already, I felt only a kind of resigned wonder um, at, at, at seeing this. Now, there's one kind of reader of a novel who says, oh, but this is impossible. How could this happen? I mean, maybe I could believe they'd bump into Uriah Heep again, but not Littimer in the cell next door. But, of course, a Dickens reader doesn't say that. A Dickens reader goes, of course, of course, how inevitable it is and how just <laughs> that these two should end up in cells next to each other practicing their hypocrisies still. Um, And so, you know, it's not just the connections he makes, it's the audacity with which he uses, often, I think, he uses the things which novelists are told are sort of, you know, they shouldn't do. (laughs) <laughs> the sins of the sins of bad writing—he turns into creative devices.
0: Yes, you actually quote Martin Amis saying, "All writing is a campaign against cliché," and there's and there's Dickens loving his clichés and twisting them and taking them one step further, which is also part of something. I mean, all of these chapters connect, and one of the things that I think connects. Just about everything in Dickens is um, and and you make this point is laughter you have a chapter on laughter um, and he uses comedy at the most he, there's black humor there's there's punning humor there's all kinds of different humor um, why is it that do you th- or should I put it this way do you think that his Incre- the incredible comedy that comes through in Dickens everywhere, even at the most bleak moments, is one reason that critics don't take him as seriously. I mean, you look—very rarely do big literary prizes go to comic novels. Is this one of the reasons <laughs> that people don't take? It's kind of literal. You don't well, take people yes, seriously. Well, yes, I'm if not sure
1: if it's because. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think, I think lots of the, the funniest things in Dickens novels especially sort of later Dickens, um, he makes you laugh because you're not supposed to laugh, you know. <laughs> um, and that is a distinctive quality of his. And, um, um, I mean, just as a, as a little example, there's a wonderful opening chapter in Dombey and Son, which is officially a, a, a very uh, a, a pathos-laden, sentimental even, deathbed scene where Mrs. Dombey is dying, having given birth to a son, and her frozen, um, affectionless husband, Mr. Dombey, who's got a son at last, is incapable of of expressing any feelings, of having any feelings, and and yet their daughter Florence is absolutely distraught, and it's a very sad chapter. Um, But Dickens can't resist giving you a a couple of, you know, ridiculous Harley Street doctors. And the main doctor's being called in because he's a society doctor. Mr. Dombey's one of these people who thinks that, you know, anything expensive is good, really. (laughs) And because this guy's the most expensive doctor in London, he must be the best person to get in. But he's only ever used to treating members of the aristocracy, so he keeps getting Mrs. Dombey's name wrong. And calling her the Countess of Dombey and Lady Dombeyshire, and <laughs> it's funny you're laughing, but <laughs> my poor woman's dying. <laughs> um, and yes, it's it is very funny, and I and I think characteristic. There's lots of things like well, you know, Dickens is is always like that. And I think what you said was really right about you know the comic about you know that comedy is something that's least often credited with being, you know, of literary value. And, and there's never been a critic who's denied that Dickens is funny. But they've, there's been a, a, a many, many who've said, well, yes, of course he's funny, in a slightly irritated way. As if, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as if that's a small achievement. But um, it's really, really hard, isn't it, to be funny, I think. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the whole idea that, that comic fiction is, is less um, significant, I think it's a very common one. And the fact that Dickens stirs comedy into his serious subject matter makes it even less worth admiring.
0: Yes, I, I, it's fascinating. I mean, I was going to ask you about orphan swarms because I thought that was something where I laughed out loud when I was reading this excerpt, and I thought, oh, that's so bad of me to laugh at this. And this is kind of the thing that Dickens captures, doesn't it? Um, do, you, do you... do you, It's on page 376 of my edition. Oh. Would you read that little oh. excerpt? Mrs. Boffin suggested...
1: 376. I wonder, it's Linda, it's my... Three.
0: It's the one where Mrs. Boffin suggested adversity. Oh yes, it's
1: 376 of my edition as well. <laughs> lucky, lucky. Um, oh yes, and this, but but also it, it yes, and the occasion of it's very funny, isn't it? Because Mr. and Mrs. Boffin have just got a, a lot of money unexpectedly, and they are they're kind of a, a, a vulgar origins, and yet they've suddenly become rich people, and but they're good-hearted rich people. So they feel that they should do something good with the money they've got. And what's the best thing they could do? Oh, we'll adopt an orphan. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Shall I read it? It's only a couple of sentences long. Mrs. Boffin suggested advertisement in the newspapers requesting orphans answering annex description to apply at the bower on a certain day. But Mr. Boffin, wisely apprehending obstruction of the neighbouring thoroughfare, thoroughfares by orphan <laughs> swarms, this course was negatived.
0: <laughs> that just kills me. It just totally kills me. And I think that's so wrong. You know, you couldn't get away with writing a sentence like that today, could you? Uh, uh, could you not? Do you think? I don't I think, know. I mean, you, you would think get we're it. not I mean, so good at. Maybe you could. I mean, A.A. Gilwood, for example. Yeah, he's
1: sadly not around to do it anymore, is he? Um, 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 Yeah, no, I think... I mean, I think you're right. I think that... um, I think... Yeah, I think you're right, Linda. I think Dickens definitely laughed at things which we find harder to laugh at. Um, And... You know, he, he, including the things often he was supposed to be sentimental about, like, you know, children dying and orphans and all, all, all those sorts of things. I mean, yeah, absolutely true. I mean, he wasn't, he laughed at cruelty to children. I mean, not because he was, not, not because it, cruelty to children is funny, but, you know, if you think about Mr. Squeers in Nicholas Nickleby, who is the model of um, the the, the schoolteacher sadist at do the Bulls Hall, and and Dickens is really clear that sort of children die at this school, you know. So the school is just as bad as Lowood in Jane Eyre. But unlike Lowood, I mean, you know, I I give ground to nobody in my love of Jane Eyre. But un- <laughs> one thing Lowood isn't is funny. It's not funny, but, um, you know, Dickens' hands, these institutions, and what they do, are funny as well as terrible. And, uh, you know, Mr. Squeers is one of the great comic characters of fiction, as well as one of the sort of sadist monsters of fiction. There's a bit where he's sort of introducing new boys, he picks them up in London. Uh, and each one of them is just a bundle of fees as far as he's concerned, and one of them has the audacity to sneeze, doesn't he? And he, and they're sitting on a on a travelling box, and it says something like, Mr Squeers knocked him off the box with one blow and knocked him back on with another. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's kind of an act of extraordinary dexterity from this, this cruel and terrible man, and Dickens always saw, um, well, I think almost always, when he was at his best, he always saw the absurdity in what was cruel and um, taught us to laugh at it. And I think that's an absolutely brilliant thing of his and, and something which is really singular to him. I mean, you know, again, comparisons are odorous, as the character says in Shakespeare. But, but you know, in... If it had been in Dickens's hands, Mr. Brocklehurst, the appalling sort of um, proprietor of the school in Jane Eyre, would have been funny as well as monstrous. Yes. And he's a completely brilliant character in Charlotte Bronte's hands. But Dickens wouldn't have been able to resist getting us to laugh at him as well as
0: flinch from him. And yet at the same time, it's fascinating because um, if you were just listening to this part and you hadn't read Dickens, you wouldn't understand another aspect of it, which is, as you say, I love these words, he was an epicure of fear. So we've got hauntings, we've got drownings, we've got terrible foreshadowings, we've got losses of fortune, we've got poor Miss Havisham, who's very funny and horrible. Um, You know, we've got all this stuff, but he actually makes you feel... Fear doesn't he I Yes, want to talk about that aspect a little bit
1: Yes, and I th- but I think, I think yes, and, and, and the fear and comedy are often mixed too. I think the, the novel which does that best um, in fact it does it to my mind perfectly, is great expectations. Um, and I, 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 I'm often struck by the fact that when it's when it's televised or turned into a film, and it, and it's and people have done that sometimes really well, but the fear is still there. But the, but the strange comedy that's in, mixed in with it goes. So if you, if you read the first chapter of Great Expectations, which I think is very famous, and I think even people who haven't read it still because of it the filmic quality of it, will think they know what it's about, where Pip, as a child of about eight, encounters a convict in the churchyard on the edge of the marshes. And it's an extraordinary and memorable, memorable is indeed the word Pip uses for it, uh, uh, encounter. But what's striking is when you read it, the fear is all the more believable because... Pip, looking back on himself as a child, remembers the sort of the rather funny misconceptions and fantasies he had about it. So, <laughs> across the great sort of flatness of the marshes, there is a, one of the only things, one of the only verticals he remembers is a, a gibbet on which they used to hang pirates. His great expectations is set. Right back, the beginning of it, at the early 19th century, and um, he says he, as he watches the convict lumber back across the marshes, as a child, he remembers thinking, "Oh, perhaps he's gone back to hang himself back up on the gibbet." You know, he's a sort of, he's a hanged pirate, come back to get. I mean he looks at the cows munching the marsh grass and thinks and they're seeming to say, yeah, I think he is actually. (laughs) And that doesn't make it less frightening, or him as a character less frightened. Um, but but actually it makes it more believable. And and throughout that novel, actually, he's the 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 fears of childhood and then of himself as a as a adolescent and as a young man are are all the more vividly realised for the the sense that he now looks back and thinks how ridiculous how ridiculous but but still I can't get it out of my head and um, I think Dickens in, in both that novel and David Copperfield he's extraordinary isn't he about how the terrors of childhood persist you know and, and you can laugh at them, you yeah. certainly can, but you can't dispel them.
0: No, not at all. and that's part of the haunting, isn't it? The sense of yes. haunting that comes through. Um, we're going to go to questions uh, soon, so I think if there's going to be a mic, I'll see whether people start. yes, there's a mic and it's in the center aisle. Um, but so so please line up if you have questions, but I've got plenty in the meantime. And one that I did want to ask you is and it gets back to something we were just talking about and that is um you know could dickens could dickens be published today without sensitivity read what would happen with sensitivity readers um his portrayal of race religion disability um all of this is really it's it's of its time and it's not it's it's it would you know the orphan swarms you know which i still i cannot listen to without laughing. Um, but I know that it's terrible, like orphan, uh, be, being orphaned, it's terrible. But it's just, he manages to make all of this stuff very funny. Um, what would you say to a younger generation of readers um, about Dickens? Like, how would you say, how would you suggest they approach him if they're to appreciate him the way you do? Because we've got a whole different kind of sensibility today, especially among um, younger readers who haven't been exposed to this sort of thing as much?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question, Linda. And to some extent, it's one I actually have to face a bit in that I, ha- I do teach some of this stuff to students. And admittedly, the students are a bit older and they're, suppo- <laughs> they're supposed to be sophisticated. Um, I mean, I guess what I would say, I would do it the other way round. actually. I would say that... Um, Reading Dickens is a really great kind of, and uh, salutary sort of, I guess the cliche would be wake up for us, in making us think about whether some of our, um, and I mean me, not just just young people, but all of us, about whether some of our assumptions about how fiction works are, are a bit simple-minded so to give an example i would say you know let's let's read oliver twist okay it is true that um if you were writing a novel now it's almost unimaginable that you would have a jewish villain who is called the jew like fagin (laughs) Okay, that's all true, and that's a difference, you know, that's an important difference between now and then. However, you read Oliver Twist for not very long, and of course you discover that Fagin is the most animated, entertaining, dexterous, um, uh, alive character that you're likely to come across... So that doesn't do away with, you know, the feelings we might have about, um, you know, that there's something unsettling about the fact that Dickens, you know, thought that he could do this. But on the other hand, Fagin's mesmerizing. And, and literature is a way of kind of encountering that things aren't as simple as we like to think they are. You know, you can write good books with good intentions and good characters which are dull as ditchwater, and we all know that. And, um, and what's as interesting as Dickens' own peculiar um, assumptions about what it might be to be Jewish is Dickens' ability to create this extraordinary you know, this extraordinary person. Um, so much so that actually I think, I'm sorry, I'm going pursuing my own example here, but it, to me it's a fascinating one. You know, actually in my youth, there was this musical called Oliver, which was hugely popular on the stage in, in, in Britain and America, and probably in Australia, I would guess, where, where the star is faking. And where he's dressed up in the Dickensian manner as this, um, you know, Jewish thief organiser. And, and actually, I would suspect that that musical is now
0: unperformable. I don't know. <laughs> but the, but the, the, yes. <laughs> oh,
1: well, it'd be interesting to know because at, when, at the time, nobody seemed to be particularly worried about it. But the book is not unreadable. And the, and, and the character is still extraordinary, extraordinarily um, arresting. So I would say use Dickens as a way of kind of complicating some of our ideas um, rather than putting up lots of warnings in advance that, you know, oh, you're not gonna like this. <laughs>
0: I'm all for complicating these ideas. And as a, as a Jewish child reading Fagin, I loved Fagin. I thought he was, yes. you know, I was just really happy. Now, we're going to, we have a gentleman here with a question. I just wanted to show, if you don't mind, I wanted to show John what I showed you all earlier. This is one of the books I told you that belonged to my grandmother. This was one of the 19th century editions. It's Sketches, sketches by Baths. I don't know oh, if you right. can see it, but I, I told John I... that I, would, I told John about this. So anyway, that was just I had to do that. Um, now we have a question.
1: I don't know whether you can hear me through the mask, I think you can. Yes. You mentioned a very significant theme that Dickens was able to present monsters as figures of fun. And then the comment was made, well, we probably couldn't do that these days. This reflects my age. But I go back to authors like Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, who presented shocking incidents, such as the bombing of Dresden, and you laughed and were ashamed of yourself as you read about them. Heller wrote about monsters, Colonel Cathcart, General Dreddle. To what extent do you believe that these people were influenced by Dickens? Mm. Ah, that's a... I, I have read those both those authors and those books in my time that you that you refer to, and you're absolutely right that um, you know there have been there have been great novelists of the 20th century and I think 21st century too, who have um, uh, entertaining monsters in them. Um, I would say I suppose what I would say is that. Um, uh, It comes from a kind of an idea about what characters in in novels are that those two writers you refer to Vonnegut and Heller share with Dickens I don't know if they get it from Dickens I can't answer that I mean I, I could probably one could find out probably because it's not always it's usually it's possible to find out what novelist debts are, especially novelists like Heller and Bonnegut who wrote letters to things like that, gave interviews. I don't know if the debt di- is directly to Dickens but what I would say is that Dickens is one of the great, he's probably the greatest sort of pioneer of what I would call satirical characters in fiction. So these are not characters who necessarily, they're not like characters in Bronte or George Eliot where you know, you, you you, where they all they have their own reasons and motivations and complications, and there aren't really in George Eliot villains or in Tolstoy, because even the bad people have their good reasons, and you you know you might sympathise with them. But but Dickens was most of the time wasn't interested in doing that. He was interested in capturing aspects of humanity. So. Squeers, the schoolmaster, is an aspect of humanity. You know, Jaggers, the bullying lawyer, is an aspect of humanity. And sometimes he captured aspects of humanity, and this is the one qualification I would would offer to the gentleman who's asked the question. Sometimes he captured aspects of humanity in these monstrosities, which, which are bits of us, really, where you recognize, you wouldn't recognize yourself, but you recognize a trait, an aspect of yourself in your, either in your most foolish or in your nastiest moments. And that's what, and he would distill these aspects of humanity into a character. That's what Miss Havisham is. And there's a, so, so there was a paradox about it. On the one hand, you'd say, oh, nobody could ever be like that, surely. On the other hand, you say, I absolutely know what she is. She is that inclination of vengeful bitterness, of my life is over now, but I'm going to live that overness forever. <laughs> Perfectly distilled. And, and, and yes, I think, you know, the two writers you mentioned, Bonnegut and Heller, both do that. I just don't know if Dickens was their inspiration.
0: That's a wonderful question and a wonderful answer. Oh, We've got another question.
1: Hi. Oh, um, what, in your view, is the greatest book that um, Young Dickens wrote, and why? That Young Dickens wrote? <laughs> <laughs> That Charles Dickens. I think wrote. The, the Charles Dickens. Okay, I thought you. I thought you were asking us, sort of, for a second there, a rather cunning question <laughs> about about which was his best early novel or something. Um, to me, okay, I, I will put my cards on the table. Um, my favourites change from time to time depending on what I've most recently read, but. My favourite, the one I admire the most, is Great Expectations. That is, it seems to me, if you like Dickens' perfect novel. And it is amazing that it should be so, because it was written under such huge pressure, as you might know. He suddenly had to supply a novel for his weekly magazine all the year round because the sales were falling, because the lead, the lead fiction... Um, but he was put, was no good, and he had to produce was written by somebody else, Charles Lever. so he had to produce one of his own in a hurry. but somehow, under that pressure it somehow it had an amazing galvanizing effect on him, and it 's a novel it 's no accident that it 's the one novel of his which was which has a slightly unhappy ending and was going to have a very unhappy ending but his friend Bulwer lytton made him change it. And it's a novel where some of the things that Linda was asking and talking about earlier seem to me perfectly represented. The mixture of fear and comedy, the extraordinary sort of... A person haunted by what he thinks Pitt, the narrator as sort of people and spirits out there but all turn out to be elements of his own past his own childhood um and it just seems to me and and also it's I I guess this is a negative virtue but it's it's the novel of his which has its really really interesting female characters but it doesn't have any sort of doesn't really have one of those sort of angelic good women that. Even I, as a Dickens fan, get slightly irked by sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, Estella, the whole thing of his bewitchment by Estella seems to me to be absolutely gripping every time I read it. So, so yeah, that's, that's my absolute favourite. And I think one of the greatest five or six novels ever written.
0: Um. And John does talk about that quite a bit in The Artful Dickens. We've got about three minutes and I'm going to ask... We've got one more question. I'm going to ask it to be quick and I'm going to say that everyone should go to the bookshop, even though John can't be here with us to sign them. We hope he gets here one day and you hold on to your copies and bring them to him then. Um, So, yes, one uh, last question and a quick answer. Sorry, Linda, if
1: I'm stealing your thunder, but I'm I'm afraid that we won't get to this uh, question would any novelist now be taken seriously who gave one single character in his book the ridiculous names that uh, Dickens gave all his characters?
0: <laughs> There's a whole <laughs> chapter on that his by the way. You've got...
1: The names are poetry. Poetry. <laughs> <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> Not by accident is there a, a chapter in my in my book indeed about namings, because he's his naming is one of his great art forms. And, of course, sometimes he over-eggs the pudding. I think in hard times, McChocum child is a bit much <laughs> for a schoolteacher. But it's, it is, as they say, no accident that there are more um, eponyms, that means words derived from fictional names, in the Oxford English Dictionary from Dickens than any other writer, including Shakespeare. And when you uh, um, you know when you find out um, that um, you know some of these some of these uh, uh, some of these words some of these characters are actually things that um, you know Dickens invented. How could he invent these extraordinary names um, that um, you know? I think when he wrote wrote his plans for his novels, he very often mucked around with sketching out names, first of all. And when he finally got his name, he knew where he was going. And um, I think his names are a delight.
0: Chuzzlewit. Chuzzlewit. (laughs)
1: <laughs> sloppy yes. I
0: mean they're just brilliant well Scrooge I mean yes. you know, I offer
1: you Scrooge
0: Scrooge he invented
1: Scrooge you know it's now just seems a word it seems a word which was sort of perfect for, for for gouging and screwing and miserliness but Dickens invented it and it's a word once he invented that name we'll never forget the character
0: thank you so much John Mullen we have so it's been such a delight talking to you Thank you so much. I wish I'm wish we. Could...
1: terrible for being late. You're, you're a saint for putting up with me. You're all saints.
0: No, this has been so wonderful. I wish we had another hour to chat. And again, everyone, the artful Dickens is in the bookshop. And it is just a delight. Whether, as I said before, whether you're a fan of Dickens, you've never read him, you read him a little bit and you can't remember much, this book is the gateway drug. thank you again thank you john mullen thanks it looks so lovely there